and open 1 Samuel 2. If you need some, they're under the chairs in front of you. Uh, we have scattered around some Bibles, and you'll find 1 Samuel 2 on page 283 in those Bibles, 283. Even if you're a visitor here, your first time here, and not maybe used to kind of listening to, to a message or reading the Bible, you'll be helped by having it open and following along. It will help you to kind of track with what we're saying. So page 283 uh, in those Bibles. I want to make mention before we read it as you're flipping there that this is part of a series we started last week. It goes along with this reading guide we put together that helps you five chapters a week work through First and Second Samuel. And then each Sunday we'll pull something out of what you've read to teach on. We won't cover all five chapters, but something out of that. This week it is out of chapter two because this provides a turning point from the ministry that's been occurring to this new ministry under Samuel. So that's why I selected this today. So if you didn't grab one last week, they're available out in the lobby. I encourage you to grab one. Follow along over these next few months in this series. Uh, before we read our particular passage, I want to point to a New Testament passage that I think we'll see illustrated in 1 Samuel 2. And that's a passage out of 1 Peter Chapter 4. In 1 Peter 4, this is what it says, starting in verse 14. If you are reviled, that means attacked, verbally attacked, mocked, for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. In other words, it says if you're reviled for the name of Christ, that's blessed. But... Don't claim that, but really you're suffering because you're stealing or doing wrong, or troublesome metal, or even murder is listed here. So make sure it's for the name of Christ, not your behavior. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So it switches back to that persecution as a believer. And then look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? It warns that it's a type of judgment that can come for those that are claiming Christ, and yet their life is just making a mockery of that, and so that it tarnishes the name of Christ. And so as a form of discipline, God might bring judgment to his people. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, it's not, it's not the same wrath that is poured out on those who have rejected the gospel. It's not like God is yanking your salvation out from underneath you. But he says there's, there's judgment. There's in, in the sense of discipline that he might bring if his name is so being mocked. Friends, that's what we'll see in this passage in, in vivid detail. In a, in a sobering passage where these men who ought to be leading among the people are making a mockery of the faith and they are they're abusing those underneath their care rather than leading and caring for them and God and God disciplines but woven throughout this this failure in the spiritual leadership in Israel are brief glimpses of hope and these glimpses of hope come in this young man Samuel that is being raised up at the same time. So as I read now, what you'll see screamed out loudly in the passage is the failing of this leadership. What you'll see whispered throughout is hope because God is bringing in someone new to lead there. So watch for that, watch for that hope. Let's read now in 1 Samuel 
chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest would the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat raw uh, for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. And he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one whom she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people know my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and Honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will lightly esteem or will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off from, from every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. 
This will be a passage that shows God's holiness. It will be a passage that is a sober warning. Uh, but it's one, honestly, that if you've ever been in a position of having been harmed by somebody in leadership, especially somebody that is in spiritual leadership, and we, we hear scandals like that sometimes, and you wonder, how does the Lord view that? Does the Lord care? This is a passage, I think, that brings comfort because the Lord sees and the Lord addresses an abuse like that. It begins with this twisted, self-serving worship from Eli's two sons. Eli was the high priest. His sons were serving with him there, and it was, the plan was that they would take over. And yet we see that they are described here as worthless men in verse 12. That doesn't mean that they have no worth or value before God. It's not a statement like that. It's a statement of their wickedness, of their rebellion, their persistent, ongoing sin. And their conduct was proof that the second half of this verse is true. They did not know the Lord. It wasn't for lack of opportunity for these men, was it? They were being raised where their father was the high priest. They were in the temple, at this point, the tabernacle regularly. They had every opportunity to know the Lord. It wasn't lack of opportunity. They were rejecting it. And their lives were showing that in vivid detail. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the custom of the priests with the people, meaning they were abusing this. What, what did they do that was so wrong? We have to really get that to understand why God's judgment is as severe as it is here. What were they doing wrong? Well, the people were come to bring offerings, to, to bring meat to offer to the Lord. And the Old Testament had some clear rules for what they were to do with that meat. Some of it was for them, for the priests. Some of it was to be offered to the Lord, and some was to be for the worshiper. Uh, Leviticus 7.31 would be one of, of many passages, in particular in Leviticus, that spells out in detail what, were, what they were to do. It says, The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast, if it's, a, if it's like a bird, shall be for Aaron and for his sons. And then there were other portions that were for the worshipers, the people that brought the sacrifice, that they were to eat and enjoy and celebrate with their family before the Lord. So some was to be burned, some was to be given to the priest, some, and the majority of it, was for the people themselves. And yet they were totally twisting it and distorting that. Rather than being satisfied with the portion given to them, it says they would go to the pots where the people were cooking what was for them. They would take a big fork and they would stick it in there and they'd take out whatever they wanted from it. Or they would go to them when the meat was still raw. And rather than burning this fat, did you read in here? Did you see what it says they would do? They would say, no, give it to me with the fat on it because that was like the better part of the meat. And the, the people would even try to do the right thing. They would say, no, no, burn the fat and then you can take what you want. We'll give it to you. And they resorted to violence. They say, no, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to take it by force. So they were twisting and abusing this role that they had literally to make themselves fat on behalf of what the people ought to be bringing to the Lord. And if that wasn't bad enough, you read in verse 22, it says they were lying with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. These women that were coming there to serve the Lord, they were seducing them, taking advantage of them. So they were literally making themselves fat and they were seducing these women, using their role and privilege to do so. Those are themes that run even through the New Testament, that run even through today. When we hear of people abusing their position in spiritual leadership, it's often loading their wallets and taking advantage of women. 
And we see that continue on, and it was happening here, and the Lord will not have it. He will not stand for this. It says, verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. It was before the Lord they were doing this. People were impacted, but it was before the Lord. It describes it as sin. Sin, here this word, is simply a word that means to miss the mark, and they went far from the mark, far from what they ought to do. Rather than serving the Lord, they were abusing the people, taking from them, stealing from them, essentially stealing from the Lord. They were far from that mark. But, but I can't help but see another word vividly illustrated. It's not actually a word that's used here, but it's a word that's used throughout the Old and New Testament to describe this type of behavior. It's the word ungodliness. The word ungodliness, that simply means the absence of God in your thoughts. And we often see it in passages lined up with sin. One example would be Psalm 36. It says, transgression speaks to the ungodly. Transgression is another word for sin. Ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He says, what is it to be ungodly? No fear of God before your eyes. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, he writes about this as the root, really, of all sin, even before pride. Pride itself comes out of this because ungodliness is to live as if God is irrelevant to your life. There's no boundaries on your behavior. There's no fear of God. It's whatever you want is what goes. Pride and everything else flows out of that. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. And it describes the, the words that we say, deceitfulness, all this is flowing out of this ungodliness, this no fear of God before your eyes. That is what we see with these men. And it was for men that were in a position to lead the people, to intercede between the people and God. And they were making a mockery of that. Can, can you imagine poor Israelite just coming, the, the worship is focused at the temple. That's how they, they come and they particularly worship God and they know that they're going to come and they're going to get mistreated. They're going to get stolen from. The, the stuff that should be to God is going to get taken. The stuff that should be for them, they might get strong arms, take it away from them. How would that have tainted their view of God? Isn't that why this type of behavior among spiritual leaders is so grieving because of how it affects the whole body? We'll come back to this at the end when we think of what are we to learn from this, but just a brief note that we must beware of taking God lightly. We, we, we must beware of playing a religious game, going through the motions, and then living an ungodly life. No fear of God, doing whatever we want, saying what we want, acting how we want, doing what we want. This passage has a warning for us there. We'll come back to that. But I want you to notice it swings now. Unless we become too discouraged, there's this beautiful picture of quiet faithfulness in some of these intervening verses. It comes back to the judgment pronounced on them, but look again at verses 18 to 21. In contrast to Eli's sons, we see Samuel ministering before the Lord. He's a young man at this point. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Verse 26, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. 
Even the very first verse of chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open, you see there again, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. There's these little statements woven throughout that reminds the reader, reminds us that, that God has got a plan. It's quiet. It's working in the background. He's going to bring judgment here, but he's got a plan. Things aren't out of control. Things aren't hopeless. Del Ralph Davis, he tells a, a neat story, I think, that illustrates the way that God often works. He tells a story from World War II, and it's about a, a particular pilot on a bombing run into Europe. And as he's flying his plane, there's the anti-aircraft shrapnel going off all around him. And one of the bombs explodes right by his plane. And he sends these mini bombs into his plane that, that ought to have exploded and downed him right then. And yet it didn't happen. And he was able to limp back his plane back and land it. And the mechanics were taking apart the plane to see where are these unexploded bombs. And they found many of these little bombs lodged in the, uh, the gas tanks and in the plane itself. And as they went to defuse them and opened them up, they saw that the bombs were empty. There was nothing in them. Um, one, though, they found didn't have any munitions in it, but it did have a note. And this note had a simple line written in check. And it said this, this is all we can do for you now. And what they determined is that there were Czech citizens, like many citizens of Europe, pressed into service under the Nazis, building munitions and factories. They couldn't just destroy the factory. They couldn't rise up in rebellion so that they were doing their part in a small, quiet way of sabotaging these bombs, not putting munitions in them, and it ended up saving this one particular pilot's life. This is the connection that Davis makes to this. He says, this is often the Lord's way in redemptive history, and we should mark it. We will not become too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas so long as we see little Samuel walking around Shiloh. God often works in quiet ways behind the scenes. And so, so likewise, you might sometimes get discouraged as you look at like American Christianity or things that are happening in different circles and you get discouraged by, and yet there's like little kids sitting with junior church teachers right now, right? There's little babies in some of your arms. There's maybe little ones being walked even out in the lobby who 30 years from now, if the Lord doesn't return, will be leading churches, and they'll be taking the gospel as missionaries. And they'll quietly, faithfully be leading their own families. And so it's a reminder that God is at work. He's, he's raising up, even as others are falling down, like in this narrative. I think this is meant, woven in here, to give us hope. We go, though, from that, back to Eli and his sons. And now, Eli's addressing it. But it's too little, and it's too late Eli is described here as very old, verse 22, he's very old. In chapter 4, when he passes away, it says he's 98 years old. It's within a couple years probably, so he's in his 90s at this point. This is not a new thing that all of a sudden happened with his son. It's implied that it's ongoing, and many people are talking about it, and finally he decides to deal with it. If he's talked to them about it earlier, attempted to discipline, it's not recorded in the passage. He chastises them. But there's no evidence that it goes any further. Verse 23, he says, why do you do such things? Verse 24, no, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. Verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? 
is using legal language. They're saying if two people are in conflict, God might intercede for them. But if it's between a man and God, who will intercede? The man is guilty. God is innocent. It's perhaps a hint looking ahead to the gospel of the way Christ would intercede. But this point here seems to be, sons, you're guilty before the Lord. But the discipline from him goes no further. It doesn't remove them. It doesn't chastise them. And they don't turn. And there's a reason given here, one of the reasons why they don't turn, and it's perhaps surprising. You might have scratched your head even as we were reading it. Look at verse 25. Second half of the verse, it says, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. It's not how we expect that passage to read, is it? We expect it to read something like, They didn't listen to their father, so the Lord decided to put them to death. You know, a, a passage about, about judgment because of their rejection. And yet that's not the order of it, is it? This is one of those passages that God does something perhaps that is not what we would expect him to do. And our temptation is to explain it away, to reword it. And yet we just kind of have to let it sit on us as it actually says. What does it say? It says they didn't listen. They didn't turn because God desired to put them to death. And every translation translates it the same way. It's not a translation issue. What does this mean? Well, we have to understand what it doesn't mean first. The Bible's clear that anybody who wants to come can come. And anybody who desires to turn can come and can do that. Jesus himself in John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. A few verses later, he says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. But he who comes, he says, can come. I will not cast them out. But these men are, are not going to come. They've had ample opportunity to come. They've had decades to come. And they've said no, they've said no, they've said no, they've rejected, they've resisted, they've persisted in sin. And it's at the point now where the Lord is hardening their hearts so that they will not come as a form of, of judgment on them. And that will, will lead to their destruction. God has given them ample opportunities to turn, but they've refused. And so just like Pharaoh in Exodus, where over and over again it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. And then it says, and then God hardened his heart. God allowed that hardness to persist. And that's here with these men. We don't want to say more than it says. We also don't want to say less than it says. We ought to be sobered by this, recognizing that, yes, we can come in repentance anytime we want, but if we so harden ourselves and choose not to come and refuse to come, God may allow us to just persist in that hardness. Eli ought to have disciplined his sons. There's never a more vivid illustration of a verse I skipped over a minute ago, but of this verse out of Proverbs, Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Discipline your son while there is hope, while he's still under your control, while you can care for him and correct his behavior. It says to not do that, to fail to that, is essentially to desire his death. And that's that's what Eli's done. He's neglected his duty both as their high priest and as their father. And now, and now judgment is coming on these young men. It's a sobering passage. This prophet, 
then comes onto the scene. He's not named. It's an unnamed man of God in verse 27. A man of God came to Eli and said, Thus says the Lord, Did not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? And he goes on and on to describe his privileges in this line of high priests. He says, You've been placed, your family line, in this unique spot. You've, you, yours were the, the sacrifices and these special clothings and to represent me before the people. And, and yet, verse 29, he says, why do you kick at my sacrifice? Kick is like of, a, of an animal in a harness, kicking back against it. He says, why are you doing this? You've had so many opportunities. And yet it is my sacrifice, verse 29, my offering, my dwelling, my people, he says, you've, you've abused that. In the middle of verse 29, he says, you honor your sons above me. By, by not disciplining his sons and removing them from this role, he says, you're, you're honoring them above me. And, and so judgment comes not just to these two sons, but to Eli himself. And, and this privileged position as high priestly line is going to be pulled away. And he says, you're going to know this is going to happen because your two sons are going to die on the same day. And that happens in chapter 4. Let's get past these again that we already saw. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, it's exactly what happens. There was a battle. The ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And the message of that comes back to Eli. And he's so grieved that he falls over and he, and he dies at 98. That's a partial fulfillment of this. The rest of it's fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 2. So 1 and 2 Samuel, and then we get to 1 Kings. And, and notice it ties it in to this prophecy. So then to Abiathar, who is in this line of Eli, one of the last ones still remaining, the priest, the king said, go to Ananoth, to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest of the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And, and then a few verses later, he brings in a new priestly line. So, so he replaces this line that had abused their privilege for, for somebody else to serve. Samuel is a partial fulfillment of that, but it's really in this new priestly line. What are we to do with this? I told you when we started this series, the, the question when you're reading narrative is to say, God, why is this in here? What, what do you have for me? What, what am I supposed to learn from what's displayed? I'm going to give you two things. Uh, they're, they're not kind of filling the blanks on your, your hand out there, but really two things that I think we can pull out of this that we can apply. The first is we must not play religious games with God. We must not play religious games with God. Hophni and Phinehas were these priests. They were going about the motions. They were in the tabernacle. They were making sacrifices. They seemed religious, but there was no fear of God before their eyes. And their lives demonstrated that in every way. There was no bounds to their behavior. In fact, they twisted this in a self-serving way. That is most clearly a warning to those in spiritual leadership. But it's really for all of us. That if you're going through the motions... Coming to church, you're singing, you're giving, you're, you're putting on the right face here once a month, you take communion, and you're doing all these things, and yet your life is just unbound. It, it's the word ungodly. There is no fear of God before your eyes. Your words, your conduct, your action, everything is totally opposed to that. 
playing a religious game. And this is a sober warning about that. We might think, well, this is, a, this is an Old Testament passage. And yet the New Testament passage brings warning as well. Uh, won't go there for the sake of time, but Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament, you can read about Ananias and Sapphira who were trying to play a religious game. Everybody else was giving money and they decided, well, we're going to do that too. And they sold some land and they brought the money and they, they said they were giving it all, but they were lying and keeping some back. They were, they were lying to the Lord with this. And the apostles tell them, the land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. The money was yours. You didn't have to give it. But you're, you're lying to the Lord. You're saying you're giving it all, but you're not. You're, you're being dishonest about this. And the Lord took their lives on the spot. And, and it's a passage, again, that makes us feel uncomfortable. And we wonder, like, Lord, are you going to strike me down? <laughs> Honestly, we, we should reflect on that. It, it highlights God's mercy all the more that he does not do that, that he is patient and he's waiting for us and he's working in our lives and he shows long suffering. But it reminds us that God is not to be toyed with. He is a holy God. And that character is unchanging from the Old Testament to the New. And so these passages that shock us, they ought to shock us to reality, to, to the, the fear of God in all the appropriate ways. While remembering what we just read in, in John 6, that anybody who wants to come can come. That, that even if you've persisted in that in a hidden way or a blatant way for years, come, come. Jesus, purchase your forgiveness. All who come, he will forgive. But we shouldn't toy with God. There's a warning here about that. But next, this passage teaches us that God is faithful. He will not abandon his people even when there's a crisis in leadership. We see it here, and we're going to see it unfolding throughout First and Second Samuel as you read it, that there's a failing in the leadership of Eli and his sons. And yet God raises up Samuel quietly as a young man. And then we'll see Samuel continual in faithfulness. And we get to chapter 8, and Samuel's own sons aren't following in his example. The people ask for a king, and so God raises up a king. And Saul starts well, but then he fails miserably. And yet, God raises up David, a man after God's own heart. And on and on we see that. And we still see that today. Like Jesus has promised, I will build my church. Jesus has promised that in Matthew 16, verse 18. And nothing will stop that. So maybe you've been in a situation where you've just seen leaders crash and burn and you've been grieved. Or maybe you, you see that in different scenarios and you're so worried and God will, will raise up others and he will continue to do that because he will build his church. This week, our board was reflecting on a chapter out of a book called The Courageous Churchman. Um, every Every year, our board reads a book together, and this is the book we're reading right now, and there's a chapter in there called When Leaders Defect, and it's about this very topic. What happens when those in spiritual leadership, they have a moral failing or they leave the faith? And, and we're reading it just because it's, it's part of our kind of equipping and nothing like that going on you know, here currently, but it, it was preparing us for that. But one of the sad realities that that chapter addressed is how much harm it comes to a church when that happens. When there's people in spiritual leadership that throw it away and abuse it and abuse people. It's a sobering reminder for us that 
we must take positions of leadership seriously. But also just laid on our heart that some of you might have come from situations like that, and you're still processing that, and we want to help you walk through that. And one of the things I want to draw your attention to, if you've come from a scenario like that in the past, is that there is hope, because Jesus will build his church, and he will continue to raise up others even as others fall. Let's pray.